Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. I personally am I'm incredibly glad that you've joined us this week. We are going through a series in the book of First John, and this series we're calling Proof of Life. And the big idea behind this series and behind the book of 1 John is the love of God, but also this idea that if Jesus has saved you, then there will be change that he's bringing about in your life that will be the proof of the life that is in you. So not that we kind of uh, change ourselves and somehow that saves us, but that when Jesus comes and rescues us and saves us, he will change us. And so we can look to evidences of that change for proof that the life of Jesus is, is in us. And so today, as we, as we come to First uh, John 3, verses 11 to 18, uh, we're going to see that it's all about the relationships we have within the church and, and with other people and about how we respond to each other. Uh, and also, that is a, how we're able to love one another in the church. And so, um, what does it look like to love one another? What does it look like to hate one another? And, and how can we do it? And Victoria is going to come and uh, read for us. Thanks. Why don't we give her a hand? All right, so this is love one another. For this is a message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did, we, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, God lo- how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us, not lo- let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Thank you. So uh, this is the disciple John who hung out with Jesus for uh, a few years and was trained by Jesus, was loved by Jesus. In fact, um, it's said of John that that uh, that said of Jesus that John is the disciple whom he loved, and I'm sure that he loved all of his disciples, um, and in in the same way that he loves uh, the whole world. But he had a special affection and affinity for John, and so John, who's writing this in his old age, somewhere he's probably somewhere between the ages of, of 80 and 100. Uh, he's seen his brothers die. He's seen all the other disciples kind of be martyred, and he's writing this. Uh, in his much older age, about the love that he's seen in Jesus and how that love has affected him. And when we listen to what John has to say to the church, um, it's really kind of important to have in mind that, that John had every reason to hate, earthly speaking. Like he had seen his own brothers killed, he'd seen his friends and his disciples killed for the faith. He'd seen uh, people martyred, uh, he had every reason to hate those who came after him. But he knows something about Jesus, his, his great friend, that has transformed the way that 
um, he views and sees relationships uh, to being simply an earthly way of responding or a natural way of responding to being a gospel way of responding to the way people treat him. And so we come to uh, this chapter 3, verse 11, uh, coming out of um, all else that he's written over the past weeks, and, and it says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That sounds great. But how many of you know that sometimes that is easier said than done? Love one another. I mean, it's really easy to say we should love one another, like when everyone is loving. But if you come across someone who's like not like you or a little bit different or in fact perhaps someone who doesn't treat you the way you want to be treated, all of a sudden love one another doesn't become so easy. Like it's really easy to treat people how they treat you. And so if someone is loving to you, you're like, yeah, it's easy to be loving to them. But what if someone isn't loving to you? What if there's uh, someone within the church or in the world outside the church and um, they are not loving to you? What if, in fact, instead they hate you? Then the words, we should love one another, maybe it becomes a little bit harder. But John is writing this to the church, that we should love one another. And usually if John or one of the other writers is is writing something, it's usually not into thin air. They're writing to real people for real reasons. And so you can imagine that he's writing this because the people he's writing to need to be reminded to love one another. I think just like us. So either they're kind of doing something they shouldn't be doing to hurt each other or they're not doing something they should be doing to love each other. And so this for us in this passage is an opportunity for us, Christians especially, to reflect on our own life and our own self and our own Christian church family and think to ourselves, well, if John's writing that to them and he's also writing that to us through the power of the Holy Spirit being the Word of God, love one another. In this context, he's specifically addressing Christians loving Christians. So if you are a Christian, you actually, you do have a, a call to reach out with Jesus' love to the world. But I just want to remind us all that, that reaching out in love actually starts at home with your own church family. If you can't love the brotherhood, and in this passage John's going to use the terms brotherhood or brothers to refer to the Christian family. So if you can't love the brotherhood, the Christian family, if you can't even do that within your own family, how do you expect to do that to the world? Thinking that we're going to easily be able to love the world when we can't love each other is like uh, a lot of young Christians I've seen uh, who want to go overseas to do mission, uh, you know, to do mission with kids, specifically, usually, and they won't even volunteer in the kids' ministry in their own church. Love starts at home. In truth, they don't want to serve kids, they just want cute photos of themselves doing mission for their Instagram feeds. It's not about love. Why would we choose to inflict them upon kids overseas when they're not even going to serve the ones here? So yeah, we've got to love the world. And as Christians, we need to take that call seriously as part of our Great Commission call. But 
we've got to practice it on our own family. We've got to love each other. And so we heard last week uh, specifically about how Christians are adopted into God's family. We're all now brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a Christian, with a loving Father who cares for us. And that sounds awesome. But what we also learned last week is that none of us are perfect. None of us have made it yet. And as perfect as living in a family of brothers and sisters where God is our heavenly Father and Jesus is our awesome, sacrificial big brother who saved us and brought us home, that sounds amazing, and it is. But the truth is that we're all still on a journey, on a process, and we're all still like scratching and biting and hurting each other. And the truth is, we're not easy to love. I know that I'm not easy to love. But Jesus wants us to love one another anyway. If you think about yourself, and, and I don't want to give anyone a, a, like a complex or take you down a peg particularly, but if you think about yourself, honestly, are you always easy to love? If you're thinking yes, think again. You're lovable, but you're not always easy to love. Yet Jesus, and this is important, Jesus says he wants it to to be a defining mark of his people, that we love one another. In fact, so much that he told his disciples at the Last Supper that's recorded for us in John 13, he says this, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then get this, this is the challenge. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so you take a moment and you look around the room and you realize perhaps uh, the other people around the room, they're lovely, but they're not always easy to love. And yet Jesus says, if People are going to know you're my disciples. It's going to be by your love for each other. And that's particularly, specifically within the church family in this context. Okay, how are we going to do that? Because we stuff it up all the time, loving one another, pretty much because we're selfish, because we are full of rivalry and jealousy, And naturally, because of our our sin nature that is within us, that we inherited from our great, 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 probably a lot more greats, I'm I'm not really a historian here, but from Adam and Eve, from our first parents who fell and sin came into the world, ever since that day, every human being that has been born has not been born with a pure heart. All of us are born, all of us are born with self-interest in minds. Loving doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. In fact, sometimes we say it's easy to love people who love us, but, but the, the loving those who hurt us, the loving those who, who, uh, who are not always loving to us, that doesn't come so naturally. And in fact, sometimes when we love those who love us, it's really just self-love. Because I give and they give and it's this nice little circle where we all benefit. But... 
that, that natural kind of outflow of love that is not for ourselves, not self-seeking, that doesn't come naturally to us ever since we rejected God and His ways. And, and we, we this week, uh, in this passage, we, we hear about uh, another family, not just our church family, but another family, a pair of brothers, and, and what John's going to say is, is, don't be like them. And I think he uses this example because they are directly after the fall in Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we see uh, Adam and Eve, creation, it's beautiful, they fall, and then directly after that in Genesis 4, we have Cain and Abel. And I think what we see is that the sin in our hearts and the sin that comes, um, this is what it leads to. It's hate, jealousy, lack of love. And like... Genesis alludes to the problem is a lack of love and selfishness and sin and and Jesus himself really is the only solution. And we're going to see that through this passage. The truth is that that we are sinful, broken people who do things to hurt one another. And we are going to hurt one another. We are going to be jealous of one another. We're going to disappoint one another. And we're not going to love each other perfectly. Now, I'm not giving anyone an excuse to do these things. It's just a fact of life. We're not going to get it right. And what happens, what's the normal way to respond when someone hurts you? In our culture, in our world, perhaps the human heart, human condition. How do you respond when someone hurts you? Well, I think kind of when someone hurts us, the kind of the natural way to respond is, is either we write them off, or if you're not going to love me, I'm just going to have nothing to do with you. Or we get angry, and we want to hurt them back. Eye for an eye. And I think what I want to put forward is the idea that both of these ways of responding are a form of hate. Sometimes it's easy just to think about, well, I get angry back if someone punches me, I punch them, we can see that that's hate. But writing someone off and just saying, whatever, that's not having anything to do with you, that's also a form of hate. And John reminds the church, that's not how it should be for them. Because in Jesus, we have another way. And it, in fact, really only is, and we'll see this to be true, it really only is in Jesus that we can have this other way of love. Because it's the cross that opens this way. And what John's saying is that if we're children of God, we will respond differently to the natural way of responding. Not that we'll get it perfect all the time, but that God is changing us and is growing us to be more like Jesus. And that's what discipleship and growth is. It's becoming more like Jesus. And so Christian woman... Christian man, if you are changing to become more like Jesus, that is a sign that God is alive in you and is changing you. And so John, he wants us to warn us and he says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. And his brothers were righteous. I 
We should not be like Cain. So, Cain and Abel were the first brothers in the world. And if it wasn't a sign of where humanity is heading, one of them murdered the other one. We're great, aren't we? (laughs) So, Cain and Abel were farmers, and they came to worship the Lord. They came to bring their offering to him, their first fruit offering to the Lord. Uh, and they offered up their offerings. And uh, God found Abel's offering to be acceptable and pleasing, and he was not pleased with Cain's offering. And Cain became jealous, he became angry, and he murdered his brother. Now, what was it about the offering that wasn't acceptable? Because they actually, if you look and read through Genesis, it doesn't quite become clear. What was the reason? And we actually learn from the, from the book of Hebrews later on that it was about the heart, not about what actually they came with physically, but about their heart. Abel loved God, was giving generously to God in response to God's love for him. Cain came with his gift trying to manipulate God. And so God wasn't pleased with it. And Cain didn't like this very much. He was jealous of how God responded to Abel. Hate grew in his heart and he murdered his brother. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So John refers to Cain as, Cain as an illustration of an absence of love. He was not a true child of God, and so he acted in hate. Christians are to draw on the love that God has for them as their inspiration for how we react. That's not to say that when we don't always act perfectly that we are... Uh, somehow not God's children anymore, like one stuff up and bam, game over, you lose, you're no longer God's child. No, because God gives us grace upon grace. But the mark of a child of God is that we're continually being changed and not stuck in our hate and unlovingness. Cain came to offer his offering to manipulate God. Abel came with God at the centre, wanting to honour him and love him. Verse 13 goes on to say, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It seems that some of, John's, uh, some of the hearers of John's message were surprised at the world's hostility towards Christians. And this word surprised almost means surprised like it has a, has a meaning of marvel or wonder. Don't wonder or be marveled or be surprised at the world's, the hostile nature of the world to Christians. Cain felt hostile when he was exposed to the righteousness that was in Abel's heart. 
In the same way, the world feels hostile when it's exposed to the light of the gospel. And I think it's because, honestly, sometimes, even though we love the light, if we feel like we're in darkness, it feels safer to hide in the dark so that people can't see our darkness. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I think it's pretty amazing sometimes that Christians are continually surprised that the world doesn't like a Christian worldview. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Like some people are surprised by this and, and you kind of know the kind of people I'm talking about and that's those who are, who are sitting huddled up in their bunker reading conspiracy theories about the Antichrist and then like acting like a jackass to people uh, when, you know, when they're uh, acting like an idiot to people and then when people don't like it, they're calling it persecution. You've seen these Christians who kind of get up in people's face and then when there's blowback from that, they're like, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're just a jackass, right? You've seen these people standing on street corners yelling at people, perhaps, um, that kind of thing, and they're like, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're just being, you're just being mean <laughs> and that's why you're being persecuted. So sometimes, in fact, there, there is genuine persecution and, in fact, there definitely is persecution to the gospel. But also sometimes Christians just get blowback for being plain weird or mean and we shouldn't get confused. I want to encourage us, uh, don't be mean. Don't be weird. I'm trying myself, all right? (laughs) In our uh, pursuit of the world or if we're putting out the gospel to the world, the truth is if you put out the gospel to the world, if you put out a Christ-centered worldview, people will not like it because people want something other than Christ at the center of their worldview. In fact, all throughout the book of 1 John, it's talking about the Antichrist. And this big idea basically is anything that is anti-Christ. And so Christians, for a Christian, Jesus is at the center of our world. For Abel, Jesus was at the center. God was at the center of his world. He came to God, presenting his gift with God at the center of his world. For Cain, God was not at the center of his world, so he came presenting his gift to get something from God, to manipulate God. We want to be like Jesus in the fact that we always want to be a truth teller. We don't want to not tell the gospel. We don't want to not tell a Jesus-centered view of the world. We want to do it like Jesus, who was always welcome among prostitutes, politicians, and religious folk. There wasn't a group that Jesus didn't go to with his, with his worldview, with his gospel. There was not a group who rejected him based on the way he loved them. Now, ultimately, his message was rejected and he was killed for it. He was welcomed and liked by the people he went to, but the things he did say did get him killed. They liked him, they didn't like his message. Thankfully, getting killed was part of the plan because it's our redemption, right? But we want to be like Jesus. Our message is offensive. 
the gospel message is offensive enough, you don't need to be offensive with it. If people are going to be offended, let them be offended by the gospel, not by you. Let's not be weird. Or any weirder than we can help. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm trying, all right? <laughs> so, do not be surprised when the world hates you. Because you're not of this world. You love different things that the world loves. Having a Jesus-centered view of the world is not popular, is not common. The world, the culture of the world hates you because Jesus is at the centre of your worldview. When you put Jesus at the centre of a worldview, when Jesus is at the centre and when you look to Jesus about what he says about marriage and sexuality and gender, the world would not love you for that. When you look to Jesus about what you should love and, and treasures in heaven and, and what you should spend your time doing and, and building up wealth, that is contrary to the common worldview. And so don't be surprised if you have a Jesus-centered, word-honoring worldview and the world doesn't love that about you. Don't be surprised by that. Expect it. And being surprised can also mean complaining about it. I want to encourage Christians to not take on a victim mentality. And this is like especially uh, prevalent perhaps on social media. Like if you put out any sort of Christian worldview and then are surprised when non-Christians feel threatened and and kind of hate you because of that, don't be surprised by that. (laughs) You can't say, oh, we're being persecuted for that. Expect it. Expect people to have a different worldview if Christ is at the centre of your worldview. In fact, if people aren't a little bit offended by what you believe, Christ may not be at the centre of your worldview enough. Not that we're trying to offend, but the gospel will offend. In fact, Jesus said this would happen. He said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so, this presents the hostility that we can experience as Christians, not as like a potential or a foreseeable something that might happen, but rather as a present reality. Something to be expected. Just as love should be the defining characteristic of the child of God, so hatred is the natural response of the world towards a Christ-centered worldview. And you shouldn't expect any less. Just as Cain was angry at Abel's righteousness, The world does not like to be shown its own darkness. You don't like to be shown your own darkness. Who here gets their back up a little bit, like the prickles come out, if someone confronts you with your own sin and brokenness? Like if you've got someone who loves you enough to be willing to come to you and point out something in your life, I don't know if your instant reaction to that is to just hug them and say, thank you for pointing out my sin. I know mine isn't, right? 
Most people's first natural reaction isn't to say, oh, thank you, I struggle with that, yeah, cheers. That's not our natural reaction. People don't like to be shown their sin. In the same way, the world does not like to be shown its own darkness. If it's hard for Christians to deal with that when other Christians come out and point things out in their lives, what more should we expect of anyone else? John 3 talks about this. Um, John 3.16, perhaps one of the most famous verses of the Bible, is a wonderful verse, um, but there's a lot more after it that is just as good. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the part we all know, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's wonderful news. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So if we don't believe, we're condemned. And this is the judgment, verse 19 says. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. We don't want to be exposed. I don't know about you, but I, I personally don't feel particularly great about everyone knowing about all the junk in my life. I don't imagine that you particularly want everyone to know all the junk in your life. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to have to answer to God for that. And so, of course, people are going to resist that idea and be offended by that idea. Don't be surprised, brothers, when the world when the culture of the world, when the worldview hates you because you're a Christian. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John's trying to tell us that that hate is as murder. Now this verse, um, I don't know if there's anyone in this room that has murdered anyone. I'm not going to presume that. Perhaps there is. I I want you to be reassured that, that this verse does not mean that murderers can't be saved. What it's trying to say is that none of us have eternal life in us of our own accord. What this isn't saying is that murder is so bad it can't be forgiven. What it's trying to tell us is that hate is so bad it's just as bad as murder. When talking about Cain murdering his brother, the word that John uses for murder here literally translates as butcher or to more literally to cut the throat of. It's the word he's using. And it's meant to portray the brutal violence of the whole thing. So the point one John is making here is is that we can try and justify our hate that we feel by saying it's not a big deal. But what one John is trying to say here is that it is a big deal. It's like murder. Your hate that you feel, your hate that you act out, is like you're going up and slitting someone's throat. It's a big deal. 
your hate is that brutal to God. When you have hate towards a Christian brother or sister or really anyone, but this kind of, if you have hate towards them, and that can be active hate or that can just be I've written them off, your exclusion of them, you're ignoring them, you're refusing to deal with it, it's as brutal as throat slitting in the eyes of God. That's a hard word. You may even perhaps feel righteous in your dislike of someone else. How could God possibly expect me to love them when they've treated me so poorly, when they've hurt me, when they've not let me into their group, when Tran didn't ask me to come to Zambreras with him after church last week? How can he expect me to love him? We may feel justified in our righteousness towards our feelings towards someone else. But in reality, it's heartbreaking to God. And it should not be the mark of Christian brothers and sisters. We have given, in fact, given God all the reasons in the world to hate us by the way that we continually sin and ignore Him and spit in His face. And yet Romans 5.10 says, while we are yet still His enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So I want to perhaps put it to you that maybe there are people in this room that you have a beef with. Now I don't want to pretend that there's not because people are people and you're going to hurt each other. There's perhaps people in this room that you hate and you might not recognize it as hate. Perhaps it's even more just a passive hate of ignoring them. I've written them off. I don't have any time for them. Perhaps there is not even in this room, but other Christian brothers and sisters whom you hate or you've written off. Writing someone off is a form of hate. Who have you written off? Might I perhaps gently put it to you that perhaps you need to reconcile with them? Christians don't hate one another. And they don't act in hate towards one another. It's a proof of the life within us when we love one another. We don't hate like Cain. Now, if that's you and you're in that place, that might feel like a real burden. Because Truth be told, you may have been genuinely hurt by Christians who are meant to be your brothers and sisters. In fact, I'd like to wager that everyone in this room has been hurt by a Christian brother or sister. Because none of us are perfect. So how can we manage that? What do we do with that? If John is saying and Jesus through the Holy Spirit Scriptures is saying, you cannot hate one another. You cannot write one another off. You cannot act in hate towards one another. How can we manage that when we've been hurt? Well, thankfully, the, uh, the book of John didn't, First John didn't stop there, but we have verse 16 and it goes on. It says, by this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, 
that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I don't know if you have had this experience. I think you have it less as an adult and more as a kid or a student. Or perhaps, perhaps if you have a demanding boss, even you might have this experience. But have you ever had the, the, the experience where someone asks you for something that you don't have and expects you to, live, to deliver? How frustrating is it? Where do you go to get it? When Jesus is saying you've got to love and you don't have that, what do you do? Where do you go to get that? We don't have love, we get it from God. It's not something we can conjure up all on our own. It has to come from God. By this we know love, that, that He laid down His life for us. Because the truth is, the reason that we can forgive our Christian brothers and sisters, and in fact anyone who's ever sinned and wronged us, is because God has forgiven us all so much. And if you don't think that's true, you don't know yourself. If you don't think that God has forgiven you, you don't know yourself very well. Because you are sinful and wretched and hateful towards God, aside from the work of Christ in you. The reason we can forgive and love others is because God has loved us so much. Our inability to forgive others stems from thinking that we are not as bad a sinner as they are. But John has said that hate is as murder. And we've all hate, we've all felt hate towards someone, right? The reason we can forgive others is because Christ has forgiven us so much. Now that doesn't mean that you have to like put up with stuff if people are continually hurting you. You need to address that and, and there's uh, ways and means of doing that. You don't just put up with someone hurting you. That is not okay. But we can forgive the hurt and don't have to hate and can instead react with love through the love that God has given to us in Jesus. We know love through what Jesus has done for us. We don't have to conjure that up of ourselves. We reflect the love that Jesus has for us. Verse 17 goes on. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We know love through what Jesus has done for us. We are hateful, murderous people, all of us. We all deserve death, and yet Jesus died for us in our place. So we can love one another. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How much do we need that? Don't be all talk and no action. It's easy to say things. It's easy to say, I love you. It's much harder to do something about that. What does it look like to love and to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the church family, for each other, for other Christians? It's easy to say, I love Jesus, I love you. 
much harder to stump up and do something about it. So I want to encourage you, there is some practical things we can do and, and I think we could be here a long time if we unpacked all these. Don't worry, you will get dinner. We're not going to unpack all these. But perhaps these are things that you could look at in your discipleship groups or perhaps they're things you could look at during the week or perhaps even keep coming back to church. We'll look at these things over the course of the rest of our lives. Pray for each other. In fact, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. So perhaps that persecution you feel is coming from another Christian, pray for them. How do we love the brothers? Be present with them. Be present with your brothers and sisters. Commit to your discipleship group. If you're not in a discipleship group, a group of Christians who meet midweek to help and love and support each other, get in one. Commit to be present at church. And more than that, commit to each other for all of life. Disciple one another. Be willing to say hard things to one another. Give generously. Serve generously. And I think what this all comes down to in some ways is this. If we want to love the brotherhood, we want to love each other, we need to be a net giver and not a net taker to the community. We don't come to church to be served, but we are the church and we're called to love and serve each other in the world. Love is present when we, didn't, when we don't come looking for what we can get for ourselves, but looking to love and pour into and serve others. So we don't, let, we don't let everyone else pick up our slack. We take initiative and we don't just presume that someone else will do it for us. And on the whole, we are an encourager more than a complainer. We build others up with our words. And all of this is because a lack of love for each other in the church is a sign that we haven't really received or understood the love we've been given by God in Christ. Because Christians love one another as a normal habit of life. And so I'd encourage us to all to test yourself. Do you love the brotherhood, the sisterhood? Do you love the church and fellow Christians? Not all of us, slash none of us, do this well any or all of the time. But there is a cure for our lack of love. And that is a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of the gospel. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We were saved when, he, when we were his enemies, when he hated us. It's out of that overflow of the love that Christ has for us that enables us to love and serve and give to one another. If we don't love one another, it's a sign that we have not fully understood or received the love that has been given to us in Christ. My prayer for all of us is that God would deepen our understanding of the immense love that he has for us in Christ Jesus and that the overflow of that would be that this church, this family, and in fact all of Christianity 
would reflect the deep love that God has for us in the way we love one another because that is how we have to be known that we're his disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that to say thank you that um, you love us so much that you, even though you would have been within your right to leave us to our own devices, to leave us in our sin, that you love us so much that you did send your Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. We pray that by reflecting on your gospel, by reflecting on your deep love for us, that you would transform our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus to love one another and the world in the way that you love one another, that you love each one of us. We want to pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds to make us more like Christ, to reflect more of Christ. We pray that you would allow our church family to so reflect the love of Christ that people would look at us and know we were your disciples. We want to thank you for that great love for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.